Coming up on this week's show, why PlayStation 2 game boxes almost looked very different. How to use your Game Boy camera for Zoom calls. And we chat Soul Blade, Pac-Man and lots of others with our guest Scott Rogers. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. And I need to check out their latest book, A Guide to Japanese Role-Playing Games, their most ambitious project to date that aims to cover the entire history of JRPG games from 1982 to 2020, covering over 600 games. The reprint is coming in October, and you can find out more and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 287, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And welcome to the podcast. Each week takes you on a journey back to the good old days of video games. You remember, you know, when we were lads, what it was like (laughs) playing video games, (laughs) jumping on your BMX and riding 40 miles in the snow. Rally chopper, rally chopper. <laughs> <laughs> to play a game of Dizzy on your friend's Spectrum. When I hear that music, I don't think like my rally chopper in my BMX. This is because Dan's from Yorkshire, isn't it? Yes, it <laughs> That's, is. That was Dan's childhood. <laughs> it could be those endless summer holidays, trips to the seaside, to play the latest arcades over a can of dandelion and burdock or a toffee apple, or maybe those trips to your friend's houses after school to help back up their game collection. Remember it all. Back when I would have You really had that plan, didn't you? <laughs> That's what we talk about. All, all video games, essentially. When games consoles were loaves of bread. <laughs> Before C64, I used to churn butter. <laughs> but that's what we do each week on this show a bit of a nostalgic trip back in time and of course we talk about what's happening currently on retro systems as well there's so many new gadgets coming out so many new add-ons so many new games for old school systems and really the main event of this show is we are joined by a special guest each week someone who is a veteran of the video games industry who actually helped create all these games that we played as kids and this week i've got to say you guys did this week's interview and it it was one of my favourite interviews I've ever listened to on this podcast. We did Scott Rogers, which was really, really, really awesome. Ravi got him on. You've been talking to him for a while, haven't you? But um, just schedules haven't lined up and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, he worked on some of my childhood favourites. Like, you know, he worked on um, Pac-Man World, um, Soul Blade, loads of other games. There was loads of things we wanted to touch on, but we just didn't get round to it because we are the retro hour. And we do get moaned at sometimes that we are like an hour and a half, two hours long. And the interview is getting a bit long, but was quite embarrassing. And I hope Dan's cut this is he's actually a university lecturer and he schooled me and Ravi quite a bit, didn't he, Ravi? Yeah, like... (laughs) It's all in there. (laughs) Well, basically, Scott Rogers, he's like a games designer, but he's got to the level that now he consults on video games design. So he goes around to the companies and he kind of says like, oh, I'll help you fix this game. And... You know, he he was responsible for uh, the the Pac-Man, the the modern Pac-Man that we have, the 3D Pac-Man. And, uh, you know, if you think about Pac-Man, he's the biggest asset in the video game world. So for Namco to let him kind of have responsibility of that, you know, he must be a very trusted guy. And he's a lecturer as well. So, of course, he did teaches a lot of history and we realized how bad at video games history we are even yeah. though we've done um, you know, <laughs> almost 200. 300 episode of it <laughs> yeah. so uh, I, I was quite pleased that i mentioned to him that um at the point of him making pac-man world pac-man had been around for so many years and had been 
you know, the 2D sprite that we all remember. And then when Pac-Man World came out, I was like, ever since then, he's been the 3D Pac-Man and he's now been that Pac-Man for longer. And he was actually mm. like, oh my God, I've never thought of that. So you know what I, I was thought? quite pleased that I got that in there. <laughs> I, I thought he's really good at putting personalities and kind of narratives and ideas and stories in games. Yeah. Like, you know, he worked on Abe's Odyssey as well. Yeah, yeah, he did. just yeah. an amazing game. And, you know, the character of Abe, that's that really caught everybody's heart and also the kind of character of Pac-Man. And he's he's got a history like many other game fans. You know, he's he was really into Disney, but he's also into Dungeons and Dragons and he's kind of got his roots in that. So this is a really interesting interview. I've wanted to add Scott on for years. And, um, you know, you're right. We didn't cover a load of stuff, so we've got to get him on again because he was actually yeah. a Walt Disney Imagineer as well. Yeah, and, which we didn't uh, get on you to, know, unfortunately. Senior yeah. games designer of Sony as well yeah and, uh, worked on god of some, war some, and some uh, big ps2 and ps3 games yeah like god of war and stuff like that so yeah we'll get him on again as soon as god of war becomes fast as retro <laughs> get him on to talk about that not to downplay the interview that you did with him because there is some incredible stuff in here i mean mm. you know for this hour-long interview that you guys did with him i mean i i was listening to it and there's so much that he worked on even that background which we've heard before people that kind of entered the video games industry either as a musician or an animator and then their career kind of took them on a different path. Yeah. Which, you know, he actually got more into game design, didn't he, eventually? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, we've done hardly any episodes on Namco and Capcom, and they're such big companies. Yeah. So to, to, to be covering Namco and Capcom, it's like just, oh, I'm really, really happy that we're kind of getting into this area and uh, starting to cover these companies. Because, you know, not that many people speak English from, from these companies and stuff. So mm. it's, it's good to to get somebody that's been involved with them, at least in the uh, American divisions and stuff. And were you guys fans of um, Pac-Man World 20th Anniversary? I was playing that recently, actually. Really interesting spin on I haven't played it since I was a kid. Mm. Um, so it was quite like nostalgic for me to talk about it and then also talk about, is it the Pac-Man Zero, it's called? I hadn't even thought of that in years. And then when I was like, you know, going through his resume and going through his, his, the questions that Ravi had wrote out, because Ravi did them, I was like, oh yeah, like, so I ended up like, you know, it was quite nostalgic for me, but I was a massive Soul Blade fan as a kid and loved Soul Calibur. So it was really interesting to see, you know, what he did with those games, you know, he helped translate them and stuff like that, which was really awesome and write a lot of the backstories and help with some character design. So it was, it was quite like, I don't know, a bit of a dream come true for like childhood drove. So I was more interested in the Soul Blade element, but the Pac-Man stuff was really, really interesting as well. Yeah, and Abe's Odyssey. I remember playing that on my brother's PlayStation, you know, when he first got it. And not only those really atmospheric, dark graphics, but, you know, even to this day, when he farts, I still, I'm, I'm a 13-year-old <laughs> laughing again, you know. It, 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 it makes him kind of relatable, doesn't it, the farting? Yeah. <laughs> and also uh, Pac-Man Ghost Zone, which is a kind of demo. That was and, yeah. yeah, and he still says he, he kind of gets inundated with questions about Pac-Man Ghost Zone. So we're going to be talking about that a bit as well. So for you Pac fans, this is a really good episode. Absolutely. So Scott Rogers, our special guest, he'll be on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now we've had a survey running on our website for the last, what, five or six weeks, where we asked you to go on there, give us your thoughts on the podcast, because the opinions that we get are really going to help to shape this show and the topics that we cover in the future and the kind of guests that we get on. And there's actually only a week left if you want to fill the survey in now. I was looking the other day, though, and we've had close to a thousand people fill it in, which... That's amazing, man. Like, I think the more people that fill out the survey, the more accurate it is, right? Absolutely. And I think statistically, you think of how many people actually take the time to go onto our website and, you know, 
give five minutes of their time, which is all it takes, you know, to fill it in. I think, you know, that is really impressive that we've had a thousand people fill it in. But I think we could get some more. So if you want a way to help out this podcast, it'll take five minutes. We ask you to nip onto our website, theretrohour.com. You'll see our survey there on the homepage. And you've got till next Friday to fill this in. And for giving us your thoughts on the show, I mean, you know, we're using it to kind of plan the guests that we get in the future and also the systems that we cover as well, because it's really interesting to find out what kind of consoles and computers people want to hear more of on the podcast, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, also stuff like the age demographic is really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, uh, just seeing what kind of jobs and stuff people are in. It's it's, it's not that much of an intrusive survey as well. You've, you've got, like, mm. multiple options, and you just select them. And for participating, you can win £100 cash. And we thought, you know oh, we're going to do like a, a retro prize or something. But, uh, you know, £100 cash, you can pick your own. There's such a choice that by picking a prize, we've probably limited it. So you could yeah. you could probably buy one expensive rare game or you could buy like a million games on an Amazon gaming unit. Um, who knows what, what you're going to spend it on? And I can't wait to announce the winner. Yeah, so if you want to get involved in this, you've got a week left and um, finishes next Friday and you'll find it on our website, theretrohour.com. And like Ravi said, you could win £100 to spend on retro gaming goodies of your choice. Now, it's been a really busy week for news. Before we jump into that, just a moment to give a big thank you to this week's sponsor, our amazing friends at ExpressVPN. Now, I think, you know, us guys, we all spend quite a bit of time watching Netflix. I've I've run out of stuff to watch on Netflix. <laughs> I'm, I'm really enjoying it, but uh, you know, UK Netflix, I've I've absolutely killed it. Well, that's the thing, because when you pay for Netflix, which you know the price seems to go up every few months recently. But did you know there are actually 100 different Netflix libraries around the world? And one thing that I know you in particular use ExpressVPN for, Ravi, is changing your online location so then you can access thousands of new shows and movies that are on different Netflix libraries around the world. Yeah, so I I always pick the American one because there's some good stuff on there. And I find, like, you know, movies are actually on the UK one and then they'll move off and then they'll switch around. Like, the Australian one's got some great stuff on it as well. Um, Recently, I've been watching... One for Joe here, Resident Evil Extinction. I uh, was so happy when you said you were doing the Resident Evil films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ch- checking them out. Uh, I've got one for Dan, Legally Blonde. Which is, <laughs> oh, one of my favourites, yeah. <laughs> one of his favourites. Uh, the Social Network, which is uh, it's still a good film. A bit dramatic, but a, a good film. And, of course, Total Recall with Arnie. Oh, yeah. The Arnie oh, yeah. version. Yeah, that one's oh, on yeah. the American one, where the UK version is the new version. Who? enough said well that's what you can do with ExpressVPN you can unlock all this content that you're paying for get access to almost 100 different Netflix libraries around the world and also it works with other streaming services as well you know BBC iPlayer YouTube have videos that are locked to different regions you can unlock all those as well and it is so easy to use one of the reasons I know you in particular love ExpressVPN Ravi is the speed of it because you can be connected and you don't even realise that it's there yeah, I've got it on my laptop, I've got it on my PC at home, got it on my smart TV, so it just kind of starts up straight away, and I don't even know that it's connected. And also, it's so fast, like, you can watch HD, there'll be zero buffering. I've, I've used other services, and I don't know anything as fast as ExpressVPN. 
And of course, it's got the added benefit of encrypting your data so you can browse the web securely as well. So stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth by using the VPN that we trust, ExpressVPN. And in fact, we've got an exclusive link that you can use to get three months free on a one-year plan. So if you want to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN on us, head on to this website right now, expressvpn.com slash retro. Use our link, ExpressVPN vpn.com slash retro and a big thank you to expressvpn for their support of our show now we're all big fans of you know the playstation the ps2 obviously the biggest selling console in history um i know you've got a pretty big ps2 collection joe as have i yeah i'm, I'm getting close to a couple of hundred games on the ps2 now but yeah this this next story is a, a story of what could have been isn't it dan <laughs> Yeah, so this is um, a piece that was written in the um, a website called The Obscurity by a guy called Phil Salvador. And he's talking about a um, designer called Hock Yeo, who um, he actually made a lot of those really out there video game packages from back in the day, like the boxes. Like, Do you remember a game called Jet Fighter that kind of folded out to look a bit like a plane? I'm not too familiar with Jet Fighter, but when I was reading this, he's the one behind the crazy Prince of Persia box yeah. from the early 90s. The one which is kind of like, it always reminds me of a bit of a monolith, if that makes mm. sense. But yeah, he was kind of, you know, in the early days of the PS2 being designed. So we're talking the late 90s, like 98, 99. You know, Sony were already working on the PlayStation 2. He was tasked with designing the game box for them, wasn't he? Yeah, and this, um, there is actually a an image in this article on Kotaku that I'll link up in our show notes, showing what PlayStation 2 game boxes could have looked like. Now, a lot of people in the comments are saying it would have been amazing if they looked like this, because obviously, in the end, they just use standard DVD cases, which I imagine was a lot more affordable. But I yeah. think with PC games, they started doing crazy boxes. There were crazy boxes for a period of time, and then retailers mm. absolutely hated them, because like shelf space is always priority. And, yeah. you know, kind of fitting one of these, like, well, weirdly shaped things in there. Unless every disc was like that. Um, I think maybe the there's this one Final Fantasy uh, anthology, which looks like a DVD case. Then it's got a kind of disc circle on the top. Maybe that it, one it, would have fit in. Obviously, we're going to try and describe what it looks like now. So like Ravi says, it's Final Fantasy anthology, which is actually a PS1 game, funny enough. Um, mm. It kind of looks like, to me, the kind of size of it, like, between the height of a PS1 box and a PS2 box. Smaller than a DVD case. Yeah, smaller than a DVD case, but about... It's not even as wide as a DVD case. But kind of like a George Foreman as well. (laughs) (laughs) But then it has the CD in the top section, and it's got like a a circular disc for the, you know, disc shape for the container for the CD across the top. This, Mm. for me, the article saying how amazing it looks and how we're so sad that we didn't get this box, I think it looks horrendous. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine anything worse to try and, like, stack on your shelf. Do do you remember when CDs came out and uh, CDs were these really long sleeves because they said, you know, they were were harder to shoplift, these uh, massive, really long (laughs) kind of cases that you get for it? I'm not familiar with that, but, yeah, these do look pretty hard to shoplift. Yeah, that's where you're you going with it. You couldn't fit this giant <laughs> Prince of Persia kind of um, dome one under your shirt without looking a bit odd. 
Well, these boxes, they do look smaller than standard DVDs, but I think, yeah, you're right there, Joe. The issue is going to be, because they are such a weird shape, you've got kind of a circle at the top and then a square section at the bottom. Mm. Uh, it's like a rectangle laid onto a circle, really, yeah. isn't it? But they look really flimsy to me. I mean, obviously, you get like a, a DVD case and they're quite rugged. And, you know, you've got the usually the manual inside, especially back then when manuals were pretty thick, the, that go in the back of it. And they look like DVD cases they were look designed. Brittle. So the, the disc yeah, part looks the, brittle. These look thin. Yeah, they look yeah. thin and brittle. The only way I could describe it is get a PS1 box, take the disc out of it and hold the disc behind it halfway up. Like that's the best way to describe it, and it just it lo- it just looks brittle. I always found it annoying when you got something that was a bit. Because I mean, I, I do like uniform cases, and having these on on your shelf side by side, I mean, you might have actually got more in because they look a bit thinner than DVD cases. Yeah. So in that regard, it would have been all right. But then I'm looking; it doesn't look like there's any um, spine on them either. You know, to see the side of what the games are. So no. having those stacked in a bookshelf that would have been a nightmare. I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a a weird. I can't even describe it. Like, there's like a bumpy bit on the spine. It's just of like plastic, isn't there? Yeah. With no with no name or anything like that. So, yeah, what could have been? Bit of an interesting one. But looking at it, I mean, it does kind of fit in with the the early PlayStation 2 aesthetic, I think. Yeah. I can see it complementing that. Yeah, I mean, well, it but... says in the article, it looks like something you would see in a late 90s film for a data, yeah. you know, like a made up, it's a data cell disc, you know, in like a futuristic film <laughs> yeah. or something. Will Smith, you know, like. Yeah, with Will Smith <laughs> or Keanu Reeves. I, I can, I do yeah. see that vibe. <laughs> you know, this is what the future looked like in the 90s. I do see that. Um, so, you know, whether I'm glad or whether it caught on or not, yeah. <laughs> I'm not too sure. But I think it looks horrible, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad it didn't actually make it to market. But it is interesting to see what they were working on at the time. So if you want to check that out, I'll put it and everything else we talk about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, this is always cool. I mean, I don't know if you guys are the same. Do you ever remember, like, looking at systems and reading about them in magazines or maybe hearing about them on TV and uh, thinking, oh, I'd love to own one of those systems that never actually made it to market? Did you guys have any back in the day that you were disappointed that never actually arrived? More games than systems. Yeah, more (laughs) games than systems for me. I think sometimes some of the prototypes always look cooler than what we got in the end. But, yeah, Dreamcast 2, maybe. I remember the, yeah, the 3D OM2 seeing yeah, demos yeah, of that yeah, and thinking, oh, that looks yeah. amazing. But there was also another system that was, um, you know, vaporware for a long time, although a few of them were out there. And this is the Conix Multisystem. Now, we've talked about this before, um, a system that was actually Jeff Minter was doing a lot of the development on it. And uh, for a lot of retro gaming fans, that is kind of the holy grail of systems that never made it to well, market. Well, it was going to be the British uh, system wasn't it and the ad- mm. and the advert was the conix multi-system i needed to do that it's on youtube isn't it you can actually watch it if you want to see their their adverts for it so it was that far along they're actually making promotional videos for it um but never made it to market however a friend of ours is doing a new project inspired by the conix multi-system it, it, yeah it's kind of a nod a nod to yeah. the Conix multi-system. But um, this is uh, RMC and uh, Neil from RMC. He's actually been doing amazingly. He's just did a Kickstarter a retro colouring book, which yeah. uh, is to support his museum that he's opening up called The Cave. And, oh, my God, I, th- I think he was number four on Kickstarter, like, at one point. Absolutely amazing. Well, what this is, is we've talked about the Mr. Board before. And... Um, this this is actually an add-on board uh, for the Mister. So, so the Mister is an, an FPGA system, isn't it? It's an FPGA system, but if you want to have all different outputs on stuff that, like, you need to get tons of different boards, I/O boards, and kind of build it into a monster. 
This is a single board that has everything built in. So the board comes in mini ITX form. It will give you VGA out, HDMI out, RGB SCAR out. Um, it's got a 3.5 millimeter audio in and out and optical audio out. Seven USB ports. And then it's got a snack port. I'm not sure what the snack port is. Um, <laughs> it ejects a Twix or something when you get hungry. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. Snack port. But also it's got a really cool port, which is an add-on slot. And in that slot, you can have a jammer harness. So you can use it in an arcade cabinet. You can have an MT32 Pi, which is like a Roland MT32 emulator. So it's... Like uh, MIDI. Yeah, like the MIDI device, but with a Raspberry Pi. So this little slot can uh, basically take everything, and it's all on this one board. So all the add-ons together would usually cost quite a bit, and this is a lot cheaper than that device. But he's also got it printed in this kind of beautiful um, nod to conics. So it's it's really a multi-system board, but uh, mm. by putting it in this kind of 3D-printed sexy case and uh it looks it does look a bit like the conics as well um it's kind of just adds it all together and turns it into a system and it's really like expanding the whole mister ecosystem and we haven't got our hands on misters yet so this is like the perfect excuse isn't it yeah because he's not actually doing when i first heard about this i thought is it going to be a kickstarter but apparently not he's going to produce these if there's enough interest in it yeah, that's that. He's already going to produce them. I think there is enough interest. It's it's, it's going to be a product rather than a Kickstarter, like from from the start. Yeah, and actually, the place that he has the cave, um, below there, is the three D printing company that's manufacturing these cases. And he said, Quite handy. If if there's enough interest in these cases, he could do injection molding as well and turn them into like proper non-3D printed, you know, like a, a, a real-looking games console. It does look pretty good, though, what they've done so far. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just the fact that it makes it all a really tidy solution as well. Because normally, if you had all these separate parts, I mean, I imagine it could get a bit messy if you didn't have this kind of custom case where you could fit everything in nicely. Yeah, and also, like, it includes a two-year warranty. Um, mm. So, like, you know, if you had all these separate parts, there'd probably be warranties on there. Bits might break. But also, he said... Uh, He's, he's, he's changed the power circuitry on there. So uh, it's designed to prevent damage. Uh, and uh, that's like with all these connectors and stuff, you really kind of need that done. And like if, you, you, if you're putting it all together at home and everything like that with all these separate pieces, I know that I'd probably wreck it. <laughs> like, so, uh, I think this sounds like a good solution. I, d- I didn't want to say anything, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just fry it overnight. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, yeah, great little project. I love the name as well. The fact that it's the uh, the Mister Multi System. All we need now is for someone to um, get a Conics Multi System Core running on the Mister, and there you go. That, that is, you know, destiny fulfilled, isn't it? The, the full circle is complete. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so very cool. We'll be keeping an eye on that and hopefully getting our hands on a couple of those very soon. I know you're off down to uh, check out the cave before it opens in a yeah, couple of I'm weeks. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a DJ set actually on the Retro Hour stream uh, on Twitch. So I'll be doing a, a kind of exclusive one live from the cave, pre-cave opening. So yeah, it should be fun. If you to get a link to our Twitch, all that is on our website at theretrohour.com. What about this for uh, when you're doing your Twitch streaming? If you forget to bring, like, you know, a nice nice HD camera with you, there's actually a way to use um, your old Game Boy camera 
as a webcam on your modern machine. I think if I was DJing, the resolution, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'd have to have it up to my face or something. You wouldn't be able to see everything. This looks far simpler than it, and sounds far simpler than it should be. Like, I don't know why it's taken so long for somebody to think of this. So this comes from a YouTuber called Retro Game Couch, who has literally made a three-minute video, which I love because it's just so simple. Now, and a lot of these videos are like an hour long, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, like, oh, an hour to do this. Do um, now, I'm, 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 I don't know how it works. I'm a simple man. But he has literally just got a Game Boy camera, a Super Game Boy, which is the, the Super Nintendo cartridge that allows you to play Game Boy games on the Super Nintendo, plugs the game the, the Game Boy camera into the into the Super Game Boy, puts the Super Game Boy into a SNES, and then plays the SNES through a HDMI upscaler into mm. his computer, and then has a capture device for his computer. Yeah, and then literally just sets it up as his webcam. It's 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 pretty easy actually if you think about it. So what what he's done is. Um... I know, I know you're an RF guy, Joe. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> Joe's the most old school of us all in that regard. Yeah. Um, but basically, he's, he's put the ga- Super Game Boy into the SNES. Yeah. So yeah. the SNES has a video output of yeah, the yeah, yeah. Game Boy camera. That goes into... I'm not that the, bad, Ravi. <laughs> yeah, that goes into the uh, RGB device. But, yeah. but also the upscaler he's using is the one that we mentioned in the show a while ago, which is this really cheap one that you can get from Amazon for like mm. 18 quid that does mm. HDMI. Uh, it's a, Didn't you buy one of those? Yeah, yeah. I still use yeah. it every day. It's it's like a little rip-off of the, uh, of the Elgato cam link. Mm. And it's just absolutely beautiful. And then in Teams... Maybe he's done a little bit of bypassing. I've not used Teams before, but I think you can just select the source on Teams. Yeah, it's kind of like with OBS, I guess. You just select it as a, a webcam, you know, I guess the, the capture card you've got plugged in. Yeah, and I, just imagine being in a Teams meeting and someone like popping up on the Game Boy cap. This is the only one I've got. <laughs> <laughs> well, webcams have become quite scarce over the last year and prices have gone up, so... You know, desperate times, if you've got one of these lying around. Yeah, your <laughs> webcam it. just suddenly stops working in your retro game room. Or well, I'm hoping when we do the next patron hangout, somebody just jumps oh, on with yeah. one of these. <laughs> you know, I've I've got a Game Boy camera. Oh, I should in do my it, cover. Dan. You've There's got to an do idea. it. Yeah. You've got to do it, Dan. I haven't actually got the Super Game Boy or anything I have. else. It could be quite an investment. <laughs> well, you go to, together we could get together this working, we do this it. solution. There we go. You know, you know you, or you could create a virtual Joe on the SNES. And then control him with the D-pad. That's a bit complex, isn't it? That would be really <laughs> complex. I was like, where's this going? <laughs> I expect that to be fully working by the time we have our next patrons hang out, right? Yeah. You know, it'd be cool though if you're in like a Teams meeting with this with your boss and you're like, hang on, I've just got to print out the notes and then your little Game Boy printer's there putting it out on the till roll. <laughs> on the till roll. <laughs> that will get people talking, I think. So um, obviously stuff like this, there is no reason in a million years why you'd ever want to do it, but... I love the fact that somebody has, and, and I love that it's so simple. But it's I know I, I it's, can't it's got that headlines it. like yeah. you know, people are making articles on it, and it's all over the news. And it's like, yeah, you just put stuff together. It, it's just smart. It just took someone to think, oh, I'm going to use a Game Boy cam as a webcam. Yeah, very cool. Always good to see people there uh, finding new uses for uh, things that we don't really use all that much anymore. Now, this is a really cool story. Um, what, actually, the first ever video game that I played is getting a conversion to the Amiga. Are you guys fans of um, Kung Fu Master? I know you must have played that back in the day, Joe. I've played it, whether I'm a fan. <laughs> it's a hard game. But I've played it. I've played it with you. 
it is a hard game that you know and it's very similar to a lot of these early kind of fighting games isn't it like you know kung fu and kung fu master all very very similar but yeah this is this is coming to the amiga is it yeah so i remember well the first ever time I played a video game mm. was when my um, my dad, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, my dad went to see one of his friends who was a pub landlord, because my dad was a pub landlord for a few years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the normally they get chatting, they're like, oh, my lad's got a, a games console upstairs, why don't you two go hang out? So we're like similar age. Went up there and he, um, he had an NES and yeah. he was playing Kung Fu Master on that and he, he handed me the controller and I was like, wow, you know, first game I'd ever played. Yeah. Um, I played it for a few hours. Remember being a big fan of it. Then a couple of years later, by then I got my own computer and everything. Um, went on holiday to a place in Mallorca um, and I remember there was a Kung Fu Master arcade mm-hmm. in the hotel. So me and my brother played that for like the entire two weeks. I was going to say, we played it on holiday. arcade uh, when we played it, but it came out on the... The 2600 and the C64 as well, the net. Yeah. Yeah. The Spectrum. Mm. A lot of the home systems had ports of it. And actually, the Spectrum version, um, I hadn't played it before. But when I was reading um, this article here and looking at this video, I kind of thought I'd check out a few of the different ports. Yeah. 64 version was really good. The Spectrum version actually ran at 50 frames a second. Oh, okay. Wow. So, I mean, you know, being an 8-bit game, I guess it's it's not really that demanding Mm. graphically. But it was also a bit of a puzzle why... It never got a port to the Amiga, I thought, you know, being that that was a popular home system over here. But now, I mean, I did hear a rumour a few years ago, this guy called um, Seco, who was on the English Amiga board, who was doing a home report of it a few years ago, um, that apparently that project's kind of died away now. So um, there's another guy called um, McGeezer who's taken it over, and he's actually posted a just a little performance test video on YouTube, which is really the only bit that we've seen of it so mm. far. Um, but he's got it running on um, a stock Amiga 500, so you don't need any, you know, upgrades or additions or anything like that. Again, you know, like I said, being a, you know, this went on the on the spectrum, so the Amiga should handle it fine. Wasn't Karateka, uh, is, that, is that the right way of saying it? Wasn't that um, released recently on the Amiga? There was like a port of that. Oh right, I didn't. Well, the Jordan Magna game, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't think we covered that, it in but... the news like last year or something. Right. But also, like I think IK International Karate probably dominated on the Amiga, didn't it, for a long time? Which was, you know, that International Karate was more a one-on-one fighter. This is like a, you know, pure kind of side-scrolling, you know, beat 'em up game. Yeah. And again, I remember, I, I remember getting to about level three or four or something when I played it in the arcade on holidays as a kid. When I picked this game up again a couple of years ago, I can barely get past the first level now. It, it is intense, this game. I don't know if you found the same, Joe, that it's actually a lot more difficult than... Um, <laughs> than I, I remember think when it. we played it in the arcade, we played it drunk for like five minutes before yeah. we gave up. <laughs> <laughs> Which I wasn't doing when I was eight years old, yeah. by the way. Oh, yeah, of course. Li- living in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it is cool for me. It's a game that I've always loved, even though I'm crap at it. And to, um, you know, see it getting ported to one of my favourite platforms. And, you know, I've got my Amiga CD32 set up here and I play it every other week or so. So it would be cool to have something like this running on there. And I think it's really good when people just kind of um, fill those gaps in systems libraries, you know, games that just didn't mm. exist on the system for no apparent reason. So it's cool to see it ported there. So we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that and I'll, uh, I'll link up the video in progress. You can check out what it looks like so far on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, at the moment, we're recording this podcast um, pretty late at night. I think it's around half past nine in the evening when we were recording this. But, you know, around this time of day, particularly if you've had a long day. I mean, I've been up since about half five this morning. You know, I know we've all had busy days today. But some days you just need a little extra something to improve your focus and your memory and keep you a bit sharp 
after a long day, I think. So why don't you try out our friends at Suns? Now, they've sponsored this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast, and the brain is obviously the most complicated organ in the body. Everyone knows that as well. And it actually uses around 15% of your blood and oxygen supplies to generate all of those signals, despite it only amounting to 3% of your overall body weight. So, you know, your brain is working hard all day. And I've actually been on these for about a week now, and I've got to say, you know, I've had a pretty productive week over the last seven days or so. This is Sun's Brain Health Supplement. Now, it contains nine natural ingredients that can improve the way your brain performs, and it can do this by giving your brain specific vitamins and minerals to help it thrive. It can help improve circulation and, of course, help with more efficient neurological signals as well. So if you want to help your brain perform, check out Sun's Brain Health Supplement right now on this website, suns.co.uk. And if you use our exclusive code RETRO25, you will get 25% off your first order. You can order it right now at sons.co.uk. And a big thank you to Sons Brain Health for supporting the Retro Hour podcast. Now, of course, we're into August now, so it won't be long until the next patrons hang out. And of course the next episode of our exclusive patrons-only podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours, where I believe we're going to hop into the DeLorean again and go to the year 2002 for our next one. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I can't think, I don't think there was any big consoles in 2002. So it'll be an interesting one. It'll be a more game-heavy one, but I'm sure Ravi will have mm. some funny stories from his He's uh, a. <laughs> I, I don't know, I don't know if, I, if I can remember 2000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is um, an exclusive podcast that we do just for our patrons where. We cover all sorts in there. I mean, we kind of we've been doing this little um, routine recently, where one episode will be about um, a certain year, and we'll spend an hour and a half, two hours, kind of looking at all the big games that came out, all the big technology, all the new console launches, our memories as well. There's news clips in there. We really go deep into these systems, and uh, the other episodes are kind of anything goes. Some of them are kind of you know console deep dives. You know, we, we do all sorts in this show. I think we're, we're planning on doing like a Q and A at some point as well. So really. I think, you know, in terms of um, the survey respondents we've had recently, a lot of people have been like, it'd be great to see you guys do an episode all about the Mega Drive, which we've done already, haven't we, in our second podcast? Yeah, and we've also been asked, oh, we want to hear about your memories and what you guys think of certain mm. classic consoles and stuff. Well, that's what the After Hours is, you know. And like, like yeah. you say, we've done like 14 of them, 13 of them now. And like you say, we've got the deep dive of the Mega Drive, deep dive of the SNES. I think we might do the PS1 soon as well. Yeah, and um, not only do you get access to that for backing us on Patreon, you get invited to our monthly patrons hangout, so we'll be another one coming up in the next couple of weeks. These are all so much fun as well. We kind of describe it as a, a virtual users group, really, isn't it? Yeah, and we always kind of like, you know, just gawk at each other's uh, very, very impressive collections and usually end up spending a little bit of money because I get so jealous of other people's yeah, collections. You get all recommendations. You as get well. recommendations. Someone would yeah. be like, oh, have you tried this on that? Oh, you can do that. Okay. And then another hundred quid's gone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also it's just cool. Just we end up talking about, you know, a lot of like technology, like old mobile phones and films and stuff like that. It's just cool to talk to like-minded people, you know, especially when we've all been locked up for so long now as well. You know what, though, because we were talking about um, MP3 players and mobile phones, and we're all, we all ended up doing it, didn't we? Like, oh, I've got one of those. Hang on. Across the room <laughs> yeah, in the wardrobe, yeah. pulling drawers out and everything. <laughs> um, so there are lots of fun. There's going to be another one coming up um, in a couple of weeks' time. And if you'd like to join us for that, 
back the show on Patreon. Everybody is invited. And of course, you get other perks as well. You get the usual podcast early most weeks. You get it ad-free as well. But really, the reason you're doing it, supporting the Retro Hour, is to ensure that we can continue to bring the show out each and every Friday, uh, bring you the news and these incredible guests as well. And of course, for backing us on Patreon, we will let the world know how incredible you are and give you a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and a big thank you this week to Jonathan Harden Clyde Radcliffe Matthew Martin Drek Young and Gavin Burnett who all backed us on Patreon we really appreciate your support and you can do the same on our website at theretrohour.com Right then, next, I'm you know, I'm not involved in this interview. I wish I was, though, guys, but I just love listening to it, actually. It's one of my favourite interviews um, that I've ever heard on this show. Chatting about classics like Soul Blade, Pac-Man, lots more as well with our special guest, Scott Rogers. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour, and I'm here today with video game designer scott rogers how are you doing scott i'm doing well robbie how are you today ah fantastic and we've also got joe in the house as well Hello. How are you doing? i'm all good thank you thank you for coming on scott oh my pleasure joe. And what we always start the podcast with um what was your first video game experience or, or just general gaming experience what was yours so i am uh pretty old um so my interaction with video games kind of predates the industry in a sense. I, I re- actually remember playing Pong uh, as a child. And, uh, you know, it was, we didn't even have arcades back then. These This was, I played this at a gym that my parents used to go visit. And I remember it, the kind of the big yellow cabinet and you'd put the quarter in and my older brother and I would play. Um, but to be honest, uh, I wasn't very impressed with it. I thought it, you know, wasn't very interesting looking and compared to things like um, electromechanical games and pinball, uh, which had been around for 30, 40 years before. Um, and, you know, it only made one noise and it was kind of annoying. And uh, and, you know, I was like, well, you know, if this is, uh, you know, the future of entertainment, it's, I'm not that impressed. Um, but was it the old Atari one. The, no, uh, no, this is the space age one. This was the original Nutting Associates one that this even predates Atari. This is the oh, arcade wow. cabinet that Al Alcorn and Nolan Bushnell uh, sold and, you know, started their company, uh, kind of launched uh, uh, Atari with it. But um, uh, actually, yeah, it was uh, it was the old if you see if you look online and you look up Pong arcade cabinet, you'll see these kind of blocky yellow thing. It's like quite Art Deco, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it. you know, in retrospect, it looks pretty cool because it was the 70s and things were very stylistic back then. But as a game, I just, I didn't think it was much. So with that in mind, what was the the first kind of game that actually wowed you then? Which which made you think, wow, okay, this is the future? Well, I don't know if it made me think this is the future, but the first game that I kind of fell in love with was Donkey Kong. Because I'm I'm kind of a self-admitted uh, art snob, and so yeah. Donkey Kong was really the first game with, you know, full color graphics and animated characters and something you know very vaguely resembling a story, and uh, it was very charming and the music was fantastic, and if you know the history of Donkey Kong, it's kind of a minor miracle that that game exists at all. 
because yeah. it had so much kind of going against it to begin with. Um, but I, I love the idea of controlling a person. When I talk to people about games and they're like, what kind of games do you like? I always say I like dudes more than cars. You know, like I, I prefer to control a person than a vehicle like a spaceship or a car or, a, you know, a block or something like that. And so Donkey Kong, just between the unique platforming gameplay and the fact that you were controlling a little human and there was a bad guy, you know, the king, everybody knew King Kong, you know, back then. Mm. So it was um, it, it's just a beautifully made game. Hard as heck, but uh, yeah, but a lot of fun. Kind of linking up to uh, popular culture as well with the King Kong, and uh, you know that's already in everybody's mind. And right? Then, uh, yeah. Now, now Nintendo legally proved that there is no connection between King Kong and Donkey Kong, because <laughs> as you guys might know, they were famously sued by Universal. Mm. But yeah, it's you know Beauty and the Beast, King Kong. You know Miyamoto tapped into some very. Um, very cleverly tapped into some some cool archetypes. But my my favorite is, do you guys know what the original game that inspired, what he wanted to originally make that inspired Donkey Kong? Um, you know what? I, I'm pretty sure I've seen a video about it on YouTube. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> well, it was uh, Popeye the Sailor Man. And oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so if you look, you know, uh, you know, who eventually becomes Mario, Jumpman, He's yeah. a little a little guy who's in love with a girl who's being captured by a big hairy brute. And, you know, if you just cock your head sideways, you can see Popeye in olive oil and Bluto. Yeah. So um, a lot of kind of video game designers have, have mentioned Dungeons and Dragons being a huge influence on their kind of foundation of game design. Were you, were you creating Dungeons and Dragons games and playing with your friends? Absolutely. Uh, I learned how to play D and D in, I want to say it was 1978 or nine, somewhere around there. So it wasn't, you know, when it was first invented, which had been, I want to say what 72, 73 is when D and D first came out. I always think it's around ET because, but I know it wasn't. I know oh, it was no, some no. time it, before ET. <laughs> yeah, no, it had it had it had been around for a long. As a matter of fact, yeah. when I saw e, them playing D and D and ET, I was like, "Look at those amateurs playing Dungeons and Dragons." <laughs> it's just ET helped it, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it did help. It, just like Stranger Things helped it, you know, a few yeah. years ago. But yeah, I uh, when I first learned how to play Dungeons and Dragons, I believe. It was right as AD&D was coming out because I, hmm. I bought those books and I still have my copies of them. But I also remember going to the store to look for supplements and I found old chainmail books. So I would use – so I kind of used this quasi combination of AD&D and chainmail in my early campaigns. And But by the time I had discovered Dungeons & Dragons, there were already modules. Um, so I had kind of a guide to – play from and i think the the red box had was also came out around that time as well so i i kind of got there just as it was picking up speed and uh i read the books incessantly i memorized everything in it i wrote my own dungeons um convinced my entire seventh grade class that we should play <laughs> dungeons and dragons in class so i and this was at a uh, christian school so that was quite a feat uh, for yeah. <laughs> 1980 to, or 81, I think was when I pulled that stunt off. But yeah, I was, I mean, D&D, &D, I, I wholeheartedly credit 
uh, Dungeons and Dragons for getting me started as a game designer because in order to create new adventures, I had to design my own levels and dungeons and and monsters and you know traps and all that. And it was really great training for me later on as a as a game designer. Although at the time, uh, I had no indication that game design was even a job that you could do. Um, but mm-hmm. when I look back at it, uh, I realized everything I did as a kid was training me to become a game designer. What was the first kind of computer that you had at home? And um, did you ever play any text adventures or anything like that? I was pretty late to computers. Um, my family, we didn't really have uh, a computer in the house until uh, the Macintosh, so 1984. I took classes at school. Uh, I learned how to program on a TSR-80, uh, but I, uh, when I was 13, I got like a little scholarship to a local trade school, and I wanted to learn how to program uh, basic. And the class was overfilled. And so they said, all right, we're going to have everybody take a test and we'll see what you know about computers. And I ended up placing out of that class and I ended up in a Pascal class, which is now kind of like knowing, you know, ancient Greek, I guess. And it's funny because there was only other one other kid my age in the class and we ended up teaming up because you had to have partners because there weren't enough computers for to go around for everybody. And I ended up spending the entire class essentially telling the other kid to what the program, and we ended up making kind of a Galaxian ripoff. And so I should have known all the way back then, you know, I was a, I was doomed or whatever, destined to be a game <laughs> designer because I was bossing around a programmer telling him what to make. But uh, yeah, I didn't, I don't really feel like I got much of a good programming background. And kind of the height of my my programming education came when I was using said uh, TSR. We used to call them Trash 80s. And I was using the Trash 80 uh, and I would uh, – I bought a magazine where you – they would have these pre-printed code lines, you know, pages and pages of code that you were supposed to transcribe into the computer. And then you would hit play and you'd have, you know, a Space Invaders or a, or a Moon Buggy or whatever, some sort of – clone of whatever was hot in the arcade at the time. And I remember spending hours entering these lines of code and I hit play and nothing happened. And then I went back and combed through the magazine and looked at my code. And for the life of me, I could not find what I had done wrong. And and that experience frustrated me so much that I, I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be a programmer. When I'm always looking back on our old BBSs and stuff, um, I, I can kind of see people calling them trash 80s. And I, w- was it because of the price tag? Because like the C64 or something was um, a lot more expensive. I mean, mainly it was just TSR. So it was kind of a, you know, trash, you know, look like trash, right? TSR. But yeah, I think part of it was that they were inexpensive and compared to like a Commodore 64 and Apple, they were considered lesser computers. So um, you mentioned earlier on that obviously you then, you know, eventually got into game design. You didn't know that was even a career. I read online that you worked for, you were an animator before that. Was Is that right? And how did that come about? Yeah, for a hot second when I graduated. So I went to school for art and mm. film production. Okay. So I have a, a couple of degrees in that. And uh, when I graduated, I was supposed to have an internship uh, with Steven Spielberg's production company. 
Yeah. But a hurricane wiped out the sets of Jurassic Park, and they ended up using the funding from the internship uh, to rebuild the sets. So oh, I okay. I was out of – I didn't get to work at Amblin. I got through the whole interview process and then only to have this happen. So I instead got a um, temporary job at a uh, animation house. And this was back mm. – so, so this is the late uh, – I'm sorry, the early 90s. And yeah. this was at kind of the height of, um, of film colorization. So yeah. when I say animation, it was really not – you know, it wasn't like Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny – but I was animating these blobs of color to colorize like Humphrey Bogart's face in Casablanca or something like that. Mm. And uh, it was very remedial work. We worked, I worked the graveyard shift. So I was, you know, going in at 11 at night and working till six in the morning in a, a super air conditioned environment that was kept pitch black the whole time. And it was, it was exhausting and it was kind of soul draining and, and again, I was like, if this is what animation is like, you know, forget it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to do this. This is terrible. Oh, I, I worked there for about six months. And then uh, the company does what every company in the animation industry does, which is it lays off everybody at Christmas time. And mm. so I was unemployed and, um, and that kind of uh, a fortuitous uh, chain of events led to me working in video games. And, uh, a, a, and I, a lot of our interviews do start like this. They're, you know, either in sound engineering for, you know, the movie industry or, you know, the animation industry, or like you say, they are animators and then it does that step into the video game world. Right. Yeah. Well, we, we, we realized, I mean, one of the great things about at least the early days of, of gaming was it allowed us to do things that we love to do from the film industry or other you know, animation industry or other industries but the working conditions were better. The pay was better. We got health benefits. We got bonuses. You know, it was compared to the film industry and the animation industry, the video game industry was nirvana. It was a, it was wonderful. Mm. Now I'm saying this, uh, you know, in 2021 where I'm now reading headlines about Activision Blizzard and all the horribleness that's going on there. Mm. So, you know, it's unfortunately the industry has, well, I wouldn't say that that stuff didn't exist when I was working in games, uh, you know, full time at a developer. But um, it just seems that I don't know. Nowadays, I I see more and more of it and it yeah. just bums me out. It's like, come on, people, you know, that's how did it get like this? I think, uh, you know, taking a the sidetrack there, but I think it's as it's become a bigger business, you know, it's bigger yeah. than film now. Uh, you know, it's just I think the top dogs just want the money and they just they forget you know, the roots and how to treat people. But right. um, our, ne our next question is, you know, you mentioned, obviously, you got made redundant. They let everybody go over Christmas and then you stepped into the video game industry. Um, right. How did that come about for you? And what was that like? I mean, you've touched on it already. So I, I so like Lana Turner, I was discovered in a coffee shop. Okay. Uh, I do you guys know who Lana Turner was? This is increasingly uh, becoming an older and older joke. And I, I'm, I was born in the 80s, so I'm not too sure who that is myself. <laughs> Lana Turner was a famous actress who was discovered in a coffee shop and okay. from like the 50s or 60s. I have heard this discovered in a coffee shop thing quite a few times. Right, right. So, <laughs> so after I'd been laid off, I was um, just hanging out at a coffee shop that I used to frequent in Long mm. Beach. And a fellow that I knew uh from university uh, who worked on the school newspaper with me. Uh, he was a cartoonist and I was the comics editor. 
And he, um, I was drawing in my sketchbook, which I always carry a sketchbook around with me, have for decades. And he was like, hey, Scott, do you know how to draw? And I'm like, well, I'm drawing right now, Stu. And he goes, well, do you know how to draw on a computer? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, do you, you know, do you know how to create art on a computer? And I said, well, I've, I've used Photoshop. I, I, when uh, we got our Macintosh, I've, I've pretty much used every version of Photoshop that's ever existed. Um, so I knew how to digitally manipulate images and draw images and things like that. And he says, well, we use these, um, these two programs at this company I work for, and they're called Deluxe Paint and Deluxe Animator. And I said, well, I've never heard of them before. What, what system are they from? Uh, for the, what are they for? And he said, oh, they're for um, Commodore uh, – or not Commodore, sorry, for um, PC. Uh, and, um, and I said, well, I don't have a PC. I, I use Mac. And he said, well, we're looking for, you know, good artists. And I know you're a good artist, like you can draw well, um, but maybe you'd like to, um, uh, maybe you'd like to come in for the next couple of weeks uh, to my place and I'll, I'll let you use my computer during the day while I'm at work and you can learn these programs. And after a couple of weeks, you can come in and interview for a job. And I said, you know, I'm unemployed. I'm not doing anything. That sounds like a really generous offer. Sure, I will. I will take you up on that. So I I went in to his place for a couple of weeks and learned these programs, and they were pretty easy to understand. It was you know pixel art and and um, very traditional cell animation, which I already knew how to do. And uh, and so at the end of the two weeks, I um, had a floppy disk of, um, of of samples of drawings and animations, and I went into this company. And I interviewed with them and they all seemed like really nice guys. And they were working on um, this really cool kind of fantasy game. And they had just gotten done doing a game for the Super Nintendo. And so I, uh, you know, I said, all right, I, I end up sitting down with one of the co-owners and he was like, well, Scott, you know, you, you've interviewed with everybody. We all like you. You seem like a nice guy. But unfortunately, the job that Stu thought, you know, he, you could be hired for no longer exists. And he says, we, we actually gave it, you know, we hired somebody else like literally yesterday and uh, that, you know, we don't have a job. Sorry. And I said, all right, well, thanks. It was nice meeting all of you and, you know, good luck with your games. They look really cool. And, and, uh, and off I went. Right. And that um, company that I interviewed uh, with uh, was known at the time as uh, Silicon and Synapse. That little company, um, uh, became a big company that we were just talking about called Blizzard. And uh, okay. that, then that cool fantasy game that they were working on was Warcraft. And the game that they had just shipped was the Lost Vikings. Uh, oh, wow. So if I had been hired by Blizzard at the time, well, first of all, who knows you know, what trouble I'd be in. But <laughs> um, more importantly, I probably would have been like employee number 16 uh, if I had uh, been hired by them back then. Yeah, because we had David Brevik on, and he was he was uh, with Diablo. As yeah, well, so yeah. He was well, that's of, that's yeah. way later. That's years later. I would have. I I kind of. I I think the guy who got hired in the position I was applying for was Samwise Dieter, who was like you know their big art director for many years. Well, um, how how did you kind of take to the pixel art? And like, I, I saw that you'd done quite a few sports titles, but you'd also done uh, for the Mega Drive Demolition Man. Uh, yeah. Genesis in America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How was it working on that film license? So I started at uh, the company I originally started at was Park Place Productions, 
And we did a lot of sports games there. So ESPN Hockey Tonight and ESPN Baseball Tonight and uh, a game called Speed World that was a driving game and a quarterback club and a lot of um, very early Genesis and and, uh, Super Nintendo era games. And I am not a sports fan at all. I, I, I honestly, I found um, doing the games, again, rather dull. I was doing animation and that was fun. I was doing, actually, what I was doing a lot of was green screen work. Uh, mm. Because of my film background, I knew how to run a video camera. I had, I had a lot of experience doing video stuff as a, as a teenager. I used to like videotape football games and, and I worked for a video production company in, in high school. And so I had a lot of um, practical production experience. And so I would help them um, film the football players and against these green screens. But then I would go back and be part of the team that was animating. And, and the way that it works is you would videotape the actor, you know, the athlete, and then you would get this uh, digital image that was kind of dirty. You know, it had a lot of artifacting on it. And you would have to clean that up. So, but but first, what you wanted to do was um, reduce down the frame count. So often, these animations, depending on how complex they were, would run you know hundred, if not several hundred frames of animation. And unfortunately, there just wasn't room to have these really nice, smooth animations. So the animators would then have to go in and cut down the frames. So, for example, um, if I was doing a walk cycle. I might start with a um, some video footage that was about 90 or so frames long. And I would have to cut that down to, depending on the game, uh, either 8 or 16 frames. So essentially, I'm, I'm trying to decide out of you know 90 frames of animation, what are the 8 or 16 most important frames to convey the illusion of a run cycle without it looking you know choppy or or weird or whatever right it had to be fluid and and look nice and it's totally doable but it's it it does take a lot of work and you have to know you know you you have to know animation you have to know how people move and and what it what the end product is supposed to look like so that was really uh fun and interesting but also a little mind numbing as well because you're just paging through and going mm, do I keep it do I not and a lot of trial and error and, uh, and then after you found your frames, then you would go in and clean up the art because you didn't want the artifacting. And sometimes the green that we used for the green screen would bleed into the, the coloring. So you had to kind of recolor things a little bit. Then you had to reduce the palette. So um, this were back in, of course, in the 16-bit days. So you only had a 16-color palette that you could use. So you'd have to, you know, palletize is what we called them. We'd reduce down the palette. And then you would have your sprite and the sprite would go into the game and you'd play it and see if it worked. And hopefully it did because that's a lot of work just to get one sprite. And then you would go back and you'd make sure that they were colored in a way that they could be palette swapped. So if I were, let's say it was the the Dallas Cowboys, uh, they have to have, you know, whatever their color is. I guess it's, uh, what is it, silver and blue or something. And then if you wanted the San Diego Chargers, they had to be blue and gold. So you'd have to make sure that when you swap these pallets out for these different teams, uh, that they would look like the teams and, you know, there wouldn't be any weird mistakes or anything like that. So a lot of effort went into those real early uh, little sports games. You know, they they don't seem like much, but we really sweated over the details (laughs) for those games. You didn't want fans coming to you and 
moaning about the color palettes and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah right. Well, we're pretty you know, we're, all the game makers are skin, you know, little nerds. We didn't want to get beat up by all those jocks, right? <laughs> exactly. So um, I'm assuming because we're we're still around the early '90s at this point. I'm assuming at this point you got sick of working on sports games and you went and started working with Bandai. Is that is that what happened and how did that come about? No, no. Bandai and, Namco. And, I mean, Banco, first of all, Bandai wasn't even a part of the picture back it then. It was just Namco, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah, it was yeah. just Namco. But, this, but actually before that, uh, I worked for a company called Alexandria Incorporated, which had been started okay. by the son of the fellow who used to run Sega, uh, uh, Ken Balthaser was the dad, and then his mm-hmm. son Ken Jr. ran uh, or co-ran Alexandria, and his dad still um, participated in from kind of a presidential authority type of uh, you know he was there, mm. so I, I knew Ken, and we were doing um, uh, we were doing more like action games, like we did the um, the Izzy uh, the the Olympic mascot for. 1990 what year was that probably 96 or so Mm. whenever that olympics was kind of a weird squishy thing from atlanta um and then we also were doing um we that's where we did demolition man uh which by by the time i got to it the genesis version had already been made so i was doing essentially i was porting over art assets uh into genesis or into uh super nintendo but i did draw a couple of original pieces that were used because the, the aspect ratio was different uh, from the Genesis to the SNES. Mm-hmm. Um, the, yeah. the SNES did a thing where it kind of squished art down. And so you had to draw it, it kind of um, stretched out. So then when it showed up on the screen, it looked normal, kind of like what a an- anthropomorphic lens did for film. And so again, my, you know, my film background kind of helped. I at least understood why it was doing the things that it was doing. Um, but to be honest, um, pixel art is like there are really amazing pixel artists like um, they're the guys that did, you know, Metal Slug and and, you know, so many um, uh, the Street Fighter team, of course, and people like that. But um, but it just wasn't for me. There were people doing things with the art that I just couldn't quite wrap my head around. And and for me, it was a lot like laying bathroom tile because you're drawing pixel by pixel and. The way that it would work is you would you would draw on you know on this like Dpaint program or Dnm program, and then you would have to run it through an emulator. So we had kind of a Genesis with this weird contraption kind of sticking out of the top that was connected to your computer. So you would you know you kind of like, almost like pushing a build, but then you could see how it would convert. So essentially, if you can imagine. You're drawing something, but what you're drawing doesn't quite come out the way that you're drawing it. So you have to do a lot of this mental gymnastics of, you know, all right, if I, you know, if I move this pixel here or make it this color, it's going to blend in with this other pixel and that's going to create this nice effect. Or it might, you know, it might even, uh, there were transparent pixels, so you could play around with things like that. I mean, it, it, it really is amazing. The artistry of it, when done well, is fantastic. But mm-hmm. again, it just it really wasn't for me, and I was I was getting frustrated with it, and and then also this is around the time when PlayStation debuted, so ninety six yeah. or so, and three D art was becoming the thing, um, and I myself, at least in those early days, I did not care for three D art. I thought it looked ugly and blocky and and horrible. It all the beautiful grace and animation that you could do with pixels was now being replaced by 
you know, games like Battle Arena Toshinden, which, I mean, they were, it was very exciting in 1996, I guess, but I hated the way it looked. And yeah. again, like I said, I was an art snob, so I, uh, I want games to look pretty. I liked Donkey Kong Country and I liked Earthworm Jim and I liked Booger Man and games like that. I thought those yeah. were all beautifully animated games or the Neverhood, you know, the claymation stuff. Um, mm. But uh, the Tekken and, and Toshinden and Wipeout, I thought all looked hideous. Um, and so I was like, "Ugh, is this really the future of video game art? It's going to look like this garbage. And it was about that same time that um, uh, I was I was. Uh, actually, I I did see. I mean, there was hope. I um, during this time I was doing some. It wasn't quite contract work. It was like helping out uh, uh, the company. That, so the company that I worked for, Alexandria, was owned by uh, or or majority owned by a cable, a guy who ran a bunch of cable networks in like Denver or something like that, and he bought yeah. a, a share or it was a partner of this new um, game company that had come up. There's a bunch of uh, animators from LA uh, who used to work on the, if you guys remember the Coca-Cola bear, like polar bear commercials. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so they, so they knew um, animation really well and had, you know, gorgeous uh, aesthetic sensibility and, but they wanted to make video games because they were like video games are the future. We want to, we want to make games. And so these guys came up, to San Luis Obispo where our offices were located and they literally moved in next door. And within a few weeks, we got this request. They said, look, you know, we know how to make beautiful art, but we really don't know how to make games for these systems. Can you help mm -hmm. us? And it was around that time that I had made this realization that I wasn't really happy making art. And so I marched over to the, to the designers and I said, look, I think I'm better suited to be a game designer. How do I get started? And they said, all right, well, we'll take you under our wing. And if you do, essentially, if you do all our level maps for us and storyboard gameplay and things like that, we'll teach you how to make games. And so I was in the middle of kind of doing this, even though I was still working as an animator and an artist, I was kind of, you know, sidelining as a game designer or at least a, like a, a you know, a apprentice game designer. Yeah. And so when this company moved next door, they asked the fellow who was teaching me how to do game design, if he could come in and help them with the design. And his name was Bill Anderson. So he, he had done all the really good Virgin Disney games like Lion King and Aladdin yeah. and things like that. And uh, Bill then, you know, quickly became kind of uh, overwhelmed with a, a wor uh, work because there was a lot of work to be done on this, this company's title. And so he said, hey, can you come over and help me with some of this? And I said, sure, this this project sounds a lot cooler than the ones I'm working on. And it was, of course, uh, the game was Oddworld, uh, was Abe's Odyssey. Oh, and, wow. Uh, it, was, it was known as Soulstorm at the time, which I find really funny because now I guess their newest one is called Soulstorm. So for me, I was about to say, I'm sure the next one's called Soulstorm, which doesn't that come out like next month or something. Yeah, something like that. It's coming out pretty soon. But it was originally yeah. called Soulstorm. Um, I have some uh, storyboards posted on my webpage and they all say Soulstorm at the top and everybody's like, wait a second, isn't that the game that's just coming out? I go, no, that was the, that was the original name of the game. So, uh, so I helped Lauren Lanning and, and the team there with, you know, I storyboarded gameplay and helped come up with different gameplay. You know, we were trying to figure out what Abe could do and what the gameplay would be. And so we played lots of the um, games like Out of This World and Blackthorn and, things like that to kind of, you know, that, that style yeah. of beautifully animated, but, uh, you know, kind of like 
um, you know, whenever there was a transition, the the frame would kind of wipe and you get this new environment. But a very distinct style of gameplay that I don't really think exists anymore um, because mainly it was driven by the limitations of the system. So we uh, we started working on this game and at a certain point, uh, the folks at Alexandria were getting jealous because more and more of the staff was moving over to help on Oddworld. And the way I heard it, I don't know, you know, this is all hearsay, but um, I heard that there was some sort of meeting between the heads of Alexandria and the heads of Oddworld. And they essentially uh, did kind of a baseball draft where they said, all right, you know, here is this person, you know, he's your, you know, he's your lead programmer on Oddworld. What, what do you need him for over at Alexandria? You know, they would kind of um, horse trade for the staff. And the rumor that I heard was that when they got to me, you know, they said, all right, here's Scott. And Lauren said, well, Scott's helping with, you know, some game design and some storyboarding and stuff like that. And then Alexandria, the company I had been hired by, said, well, we need Scott to palette reduce sprites, which essentially was done by a program called the Babelizer. And really any monkey could use the Babelizer once you figure it out how to, you know, how to make 16 color palettes. But supposedly that was a pivotal part of Alexandria's business. And so I got brought back to Alexandria. And uh, and then not long after Alexandria went out of business and I went back to Oddworld and said, hey, guys, do you mind? I'd love to help finish this game. And they said, ah, we're all filled up. We don't we don't have room for you. So I so I was like, all right, what do I do now? So that's Hmm. that's where that's where my career took a a big change. Is that where Namco came into play or? Yeah. Well, I, I did work for a few months first at another company called WaveQuest. Okay. And we, uh, they had the, this was a company that they did like these really interesting SNES games that were health related. They were like the, the big game that they had done was this game that taught kid like diabetic kids how to use insulin. And okay. uh, so it was like a platformer, but you would like pick up insulin shots and then every so often your blood sugar would spike and you'd have to, you know, shoot yourself wow. with it to control it. Right. And they also made like uh, a, a, a game that you would r- actually ride on a bike, like an exercise bike. It was like one of the first of those types of games, you know. So the fellow who ran the company, his name was Aaron, I'm blanking on his last name, but Aaron was like. Like he was kind of like a, a kid genius, you know, and mm. so he had gone into games like really early. He, I think he was making them when he was like 14 or 15 years old. And so he had this little company. So there were there were at the time three video game companies in San Luis Obispo, which if you've ever been to San Luis Obispo, it's just a little speck on the map in California. But at one time, it actually supported three video game companies. And then they were Alexandria, they were Oddworld and WaveQuest. So I ended up, I had worked for all three of them in some capacity. And uh, at WaveQuest, they had just gotten a a contract to do some games for Atari, who was kind of floundering. You know, this was like near the tail end of Atari's, uh, you know, before the Jaguar. But, you know, they weren't long for this earth, at least in the the original form. But we Mm -hmm. had gotten the contract to do um, a sequel to Crystal Castles, the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the classic isometric game where you're a bear. It's kind of like Pac-Man, but you're a bear. So so we were doing a sequel to that, like a next generation SNES version. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like Cuberty. Yeah, kind of Cuberty, uh, kind of Pac-Man-y, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, it had like the, the viewpoint of like Zaxxon. Uh, and then we were also working on this really ambitious game called Virtual War. 
And this was like right when games like uh, Command and Conquer were starting to come out and Warcraft and things like that. And um, and it was, you know, this RTS game. And it it I think it eventually got released, but um, it had like really, really some really cool mechanisms in that that I like to this day. I don't know if I've ever seen like it would it would um, you could camouflage yourself by actually hiding in like the alpha of the plants and things like that. And, and that impacted the way enemies could see you and stuff like that. Just some very, very fun and interesting uh, mechanisms in the game. Um, But unfortunately about three months into working on those games, uh, the funding got pulled and, uh, and they had to let me go. But the important thing about working at WaveQuest was it gave me a business card with the title game designer on it. Because I, at that point, I decided I was like, "Am I going to go into art or am I going to go into game design?" And I, mm. I realized I much game design suited me much better than art. Um, so I, uh, so I, that's why I kind of made a push. And WaveQuest hired me as a game designer, and now I could, now I could go to other companies and say, "All right, well, I've been a game designer, so you could, mm. you should hire me as a game designer." And fortunately, or or unfortunately, um, <laughs> Bill Anderson had left Oddworld and um, he went up to Namco Home Tech in San Jose. Yeah. And he called me up one day and he said, hey, I heard you're not working at WaveQuest anymore, but I could really use another game designer. Uh, why don't you come on up and let's talk? And so thanks to Bill again, he um, I ended up working for him at Namco. So uh, we're now going to start talking about Funny enough, one of my favorite games of all time and is actually the first ever game I played on PlayStation and the first ever game I played with my dad, Soul Blade. Uh, oh my God, Soulblade. Now you mentioned earlier on that you really wasn't impressed with the likes of Tekken and Ballerina Tashinden. Um, what was that like then suddenly working for, you're now working for Namco and all of a sudden, you know, you're helping design soul blade what was that like what were your ambitions and stuff <laughs> well now now let me let me curb your expectations because okay. even though i did work on soul blade okay my design input was minimal uh, okay. at the time i was i was i had been hired to help bill come up with a bunch of new designs that we were going to turn into the next title that was being made by uh, Namco Home Tech, which was the mm-hmm. U.S. division we were working for. However, at the uh, at the same time, Namco was converting Japanese games for the U.S. market. So they were taking Tekken and putting it on. You know, they were yeah. localizing it and things like that. So a lot of my early work, my the title that I got hired as at Namco was writer, and so okay. I wrote uh, essentially if you. If you play the campaign mode of Soul Blade, uh, I wrote yeah, all the, it, yeah. the 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 color text for that. So there's things yeah. like, you know, there's kind of backstory. Essentially, they I got the the stories from Japan about the characters, mm-hmm. and some of them made sense, and some of them kind of didn't make sense. And so I I went to my boss and I said, look, how much freedom do I have to kind of play with this? And I I had a again I went to film school. I had a screenwriting background. So I was like, I can, you know, write whatever you want. Just let me know how much freedom do I have. And he was like, eh, you know, Japan and the U.S., they never 
like ever cross like you know the people in japan <laughs> japan play the japanese games the people in america play the american games it really doesn't matter so i said well i want to be true to what the original creators wrote i don't want to do them a disservice but but i at least had some flexibility to kind of play around with the stuff mm. so i i wrote the you know essentially the backstories and the and the flavor stuff and all the dialogue for for soul blade uh, what what eventually became uh, um, yeah, it was Soul Edge in Japan and it was Soul Blade yeah. in the US. Um, yeah. and uh, so I, I wrote that and then I actually I went out to Japan pretty early in my employment and um, I believe they were finishing up the the port of it or they were finishing up Soul Edge or something. It was Soul Blade and Soul Edge were were done, I think, concurrently, if I remember right. And they showed me some of the moves, I think it was. It was either Cervantes or – and I like Cervantes because I like pirates. So I thought he was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, – or it might have been um, – I always forget. The, who's the guy that has the wolf uh, head uh, rock. axe? Rock. Rock, was it? Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was one of those characters and they were like, uh, hey, uh, we have some moves, but we don't really have names for them. Can you give us some cool names? So I like wrote up, I don't know, like 10 or 12 different cool names and they picked one of them. And to be honest, I don't even remember what they were. So I've <laughs> named like a couple of the moves in Soul Edge, Soul Blade. But, uh, that, but that was really it. It was not it was I, not design work like I didn't I didn't do traditional designer work on that game. It was mostly writing. That That's quite modest of you because, you know, obviously we're like, what, seven or eight Soul Blade games in now. I mean, obviously they changed the name of the series right. on the next title. But to be able to say you know, that you had a hand in the, the names of the moves and some of the characters and stuff like that. It's pretty, pretty modest of you to say that I didn't really do much of the design no. work. It's, um, it's, it's just the reality <laughs> of it, you know? I mean, for me, it was I, was I was doing this kind of work on, like, I think I localized about, I don't know, like eight or ten of these games. I remember mm. a lot of the Pac-Man, uh, the Namco Museum games, and I did... Um, yeah. there was the, I, I came up... <laughs> I think my, my biggest claim to fame at the time was... Uh, I came up with the subtitle for, I think it was Ace Combat 3, which is Electrosphere. That was my contribution to that game, was coming up with the name Electrosphere. <laughs> and and then I wrote some of the dialogue, which is which is ironic because years later, and, and this I was totally oblivious to, um, I found out years later that Ace Combat 3 had like this really great story that went with it. Like they had a great animated uh, cut scenes and things like that. And what they gave me when I was working for Namco was they were like, look, you know, we don't have the room on the disc to put all this, this animation. So we're just cutting it all. So we need you to just come up with kind of excuse. Why is this in space and why is it futuristic? And I said, all right, well, it's virtual reality and they're in this thing called an electrosphere and, and it's all simulation. And they're like, okay, that works for us. So unfortunately I, um, Never got a chance because I like I went back years later and went, wow, this is like really good. Why didn't they include this story in the game? So I guess it's kind of a sore point for Ace Combat fans is that the U.S. version doesn't have that really good story. And I wouldn't say I'm to blame for it, but I I definitely didn't, uh, you know, I didn't even know, to be honest. So it's not your well, fault. You- it's the studio's <laughs> fault. <laughs> you yeah, you were first- actually the lead for Pac-Man World 20th anniversary as well. Yes, that is correct. Um, but originally, I was a, a game designer on its predecessor, which was Pac-Man Ghost Zone. This was the game that eventually Bill Anderson and I and a couple other designers um, 
came up with. We were trying to create something that would compete with Mario 64 on the PlayStation. But the problem mm. is, while the N64 was well-suited for moderately good-sized 3D environments and a 3D character running around, the PlayStation really wasn't. Um, and so we ran into a lot of technical issues, and as a result, the we didn't have a lot of texture space, and the polygons were very sim- uh, very simple. And and so we made this this a very ambitious prototype that got showed at E3, and and the word kind of got out that this was going to be the next Pac Man game, and we um, we found out that Japan hated it. They just, they loathed the game. And I sat through a very uncomfortable meeting in Japan where they reamed us out about how terrible the game was. And, and in retrospect, I have to admit is, is as much as, as hard as we tried to make as good a game as we could, we just had a lot of things working against us. None of us had designed a 3d game before. Um, the, the hardware was just not well suited for the vision that we wanted to do. Um, the gameplay just wasn't very fun. They had Pac-Man shooting. It was like a major part of it, which I was always very against. I'm like, it's Pac-Man. He's not shooting. He should eat stuff. Um, but eating was hard to pull off, particularly in 3D at that time. Um, and it just, I think in the end, it was the right call. I, I was a little sad, you know, and and I know people online are, are obsessed. Like there's somebody who's like, I'm going to recreate Ghost Zone and get all the assets. And I'm like, good, good luck. Have fun. But, you know, I, I did I did my tour of duty on that one. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can make it better than what I did. Um, I was going to say, I've just I've just Googled Pac-Man Ghost Zone and there's still forums as late as June this year of people still saying they're going to remake. They're going to make. Oh, it yeah. And stuff. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of people <laughs> that tweet at me all the time and and, mm. you know, are fascinated by my involvement and. And, you know, it, it was, for me, it was a very important learning. You know, I, I, I got mm. a lot of good experience and a lot of knowledge. And, but a lot of it was like what not to do. Um, yeah. and, and so when – so unfortunately, uh, as, a, as a side effect of this or, or not a side effect, as a result of this, uh, the majority of the team at Namco Home Tech got laid off. And for mm. some reason, I have – to this day, I have no idea why – uh, they kept three of us, three employees, and it was myself. I was the game designer, uh, a fellow named Neil Strudwick, who is an artist, and a fellow named Gil Colgate, who is a programmer. And the three of us were kind of given the marching orders. All right, we're going to rebuild. We're going to, you know, we're going to get a new team for you. And you guys are going to make a new, you're going to make a Pac-Man game because we need to have one out for this 20th anniversary. And so we were, you know, we were told to, all right. So I was like, what are we going to do? We need to, we need to figure out, all right, what, what were all the things that we did wrong and let's not do those. So let's come up with some good solutions to, to do everything right. Well, fortunately there was another really good 3d, well, two and a half D game out at the time. And that was crash bandicoot. And Mm so I was like, all right, well, we couldn't make Mario 64, but we know crash bandicoot works on the PlayStation. So let's make that. So that's that was really kind of the the Hail Mary plan for Pac-Man World, which was, all right, you know, let's try to make Pac-Man, make it feel like Pac-Man and play like Pac-Man and and, you know, make it fun. But let's, you know, use Crash Bandicoot as our guide. Like the original Pac-Man World, um, 
it, it, it was kind of a, it was a bit niche. Like, you know, the overall public's view of Pac-Man is, is just a kind of 2D game and right. having the 3D one, do you think that created a bit of a challenge with just kind of getting the message across? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, really the biggest challenge was getting Namco to approve a 3D model of Pac-Man. Uh, they had yeah. up until that point, they had never had a 3D model of Pac-Man. They'd had 2D, you know, versions of him. He was in an animated show, Pac-Man Land, uh, the new adventures of Pac-Man, the, uh, you know, the really weird Pac-Man 2 uh, have, you know, they all have kind of that um, Pac-Man with legs and arms, you know, not the traditional waka waka, you know, ball that we all know and love. Um, so the the visual of Pac-Man as a as a person existed, but we needed to make a version that A, looked interesting and modern and B, worked for our game. And actually, as a result, Gil Colgate, the lead programmer, came up with a very clever uh, thing because we couldn't render a 3D sphere. It was too many polygons to do in the PlayStation. So he came up with this idea of he was going to render a sprite that was a circle and it was always facing the camera. So no matter what direction you rotated the character in, you were always looking at this, this, this rendered sphere and it looked like, you know, looked like a 3d model, but it actually was a sprite and it worked beautifully. It, it, and, and then we just rendered it like a face kind of on top of that and the arms and the legs and, you know, coming off and the eyebrows kind of coming out of that. And, uh, you know, there's a few moments where you can kind of see those elements sorting through the sprite, but for the most part, it, it held up really well. It it must've been massively pressured as well, because if you think about it, Pac-Man like is the biggest icon, you know, you've got Mario and Sonic and people play around with Mario and Sonic do 3d stuff, but Pac-Man is like, the number one video game asset. It's like, right, uh, yeah. I mean, you pa- know, Pac-Man yeah. is Namco's Mickey Mouse. And so we had to treat it, you know, with that level of respect. But the problem was Pac-Man, I mean, Pac-Man was old fashioned at the time. Like people were like, oh, is Pac-Man still a thing? You know, they didn't realize that, you know, kind of like what people say about Sonic the Hedgehog now, I guess, right? Is they're like, oh, I didn't yeah. realize they're still making Sonic games. Well, the same was true for Pac-Man. Like I think really... In the public consciousness, it was Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, maybe Baby Pac, but mostly the Pac-Man cartoon show. And that Mm. was it. So on one hand, it gave us some room to be flexible because we, you know, what the the world remembered of Pac-Man wasn't a lot. And so it gave us some room to play. But we also had to honor... The history, Pac-Man World is actually the 16th Pac-Man game that was made. And so we had to respect the fact that there were, you know, 15 other games before that. And not, you know, there's not really a hard and fast continuity to Pac-Man, but we still had to respect it. So um, that's why we created a new bad guy for the game. Uh, and but and we had the little characters uh, in it, like his, you know, his... Uh, Miss Pac-Man and Baby Pack and and the dog and the Professor Pack, uh, and but actually early on um, we wanted to do because it was the 20th anniversary we wanted to have a whole bunch of Namco characters in it, kind of celebrating with Pac-Man, and so we originally we were going to have like all these characters like Valkyrie and uh, I'm a big Dig Dug fan, so I wanted to get Dig Dug in there. And Mappy and oh my gosh, like every like you imagine every 
sentient creature from a Namco game we were trying to get in there. And in the end, um, Namco Japan was like, nope, nope, we don't, you know, we don't want these characters in. And the only character that kind of survived the cut was Puka from Dig Dug. Uh, For some reason, he still uh, stayed in the game. But we had all these other characters we wanted to have as like your friends that you were saving from this bad guy. And uh, and they ended up just being the Pac-Man family. So I've got two follow-ups to Pac-Man World. Uh, I'll roll them into one. So one, you must be pretty pleased because of Pac-Man World, you know, what he looks like in that is still kind of what he looks like now. That's, you know, they used that version of him for, for Smash Bros. Yeah. Um, which I think is really awesome. And at this point now, you know, Pac-Man World was 24 years ago. So that kind of version of him is now has <laughs> now been around longer than the original I guess, you know, at that oh, point, yeah. which is really cool. So you must be pretty proud of that. And secondly, <laughs> well, when you when you put it that way, yeah, I, I hadn't actually made that connection. But yeah, that's, that's pretty great. So, you know, he still looks like that, which is awesome. And then secondly, it must have been pretty nerve wracking after having Pac-Man Ghost Zone, you know, kind of hated on by the Japanese board to then go kind of like have the slate wiped clean and yeah. then move on I, and make the 20th anniversary Pac-Man World. What was that like when you presented the game the second time around? I kind of feel like we were all too busy to really think about it. I mean, if I okay. stopped and think about it, I would have been terrified. But the <laughs> fact that for, like I said, for some reason they kept me around, they, they saw something in me that even I you know, didn't realize. And, and so, um, and, and the people that we ended up getting, like all of the, the programmers and artists and designers that came in, you know, these are guys like uh, Hardy LaBelle who went on to do Halo uh, and Brian Leake, who, uh, oh my gosh, Brian has done so many amazing games. And um, our artists, guys like Brian Wanamaker, who uh, ended up uh, working for Ukes in Japan and doing a ton of really great games. And, and I mean, there, there were so many talented programmers and artists. And like we brought in a really good team of people to kind of, you know, make this as good a game as it could be. And one, one person who um, really also deserves a shout out uh, was a fellow named Monty Kane, who was uh, an artist and he would do 3D stuff and 2D stuff, but he really, he had a very whimsical art style uh, that, um, that ended up being the foundation of a lot of the character design in the game. Like the characters that weren't Pac-Man, he helped design a lot of these. Um, and, uh, and, that was uh, having that, you know, person with that whimsical sense. It really um, brought a lot of life to the game. I'm amazed to see that you're uh, kind of doing lecturing now. And, and also you've done uh, talks on uh, like video game design uh, yeah. with the New York Film School as well. So um, how, how, how have you kind of found the students these days and uh, uh, their kind of concepts of video games and design and uh, do you think that it's it's tougher nowadays for people to kind of get a new genre out there or, or, or get a new idea and is it is it set in the same kind of form at the moment well i i think it's tougher because there are so many people who want to make video games or are making video games so it's a very crowded market but conversely there's so much opportunity i i think about when I started making games, what what would it have required for me to go, all right, I've got this idea for a game. I want to make it. What do I need? You know, my, uh, uh, you know, the, the hardware to make 3D graphics was $250,000 a seat 
So for one person to use one computer and license it from Maya, it was $250,000. And you generally needed somewhere in the neighborhood of about three to six of those things to have a proper game development studio. So right there, you're already like, you know, a million and a half dollars in with just the art. And then you, of course, need a couple of designers and they need, you know, computers and software and stuff. And then you need programmers and you probably want somewhere in the neighborhood of at least three or four programmers, maybe even a tools programmer if you're feeling kind of luxurious. And then, of course, all the testers and you need at least a producer to kind of ride herd over everybody, maybe a creative director or or whatever. And then you need a place to do this in and and you need time. And it usually would take, oh, I don't know, anywhere in the neighborhood of uh, 12, 18 months to a few years, you know, a few years to make a game. So the the cost of making a game was really high. And I think of now what our students have uh, at the, uh, so I teach at both the New York Film Academy and I occasionally teach at the University of Southern California. And all the resources, though, that these students have, a lot of them are free. So if you want to use Unity or Unreal, um, that's free. Uh, you know, if you don't want their name on the on the, you know, your opening credits, then you pay them, you know, a few thousand dollars and you can turn that off. But the, you know, the access to art assets like, you know, you go into um, Unity and you go to the assets store and all these people have made all these gorgeous you know, characters that are animated and environments and textures and lighting things. And there's so many plugins. And I, I, so in 2018, I was working for a virtual reality company and I was making prototypes and um, I hadn't programmed anything since, you know, those dark days in the eighties. And, uh, and I think my, my level designer was gone for like a week long vacation. I'm like, I don't want to sit around for a week waiting for him to get back to build something. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to teach myself how to do this. And so I sat down with with Unity. And uh, within two days, I got like a really beautiful level. I was doing like a little VR experience thing where you would just kind of interact with stuff and squish them and all that. But I, I got like a really respectable looking game level up and running in like two days from literally starting from zero. I, I pretty much was like, look – I know how this stuff works, but I'm just going to assume I'm like the biggest dummy and I'm just going to start watching tutorial videos. And then when I would have questions, I'd go online and I'd look up message boards and there were all these answers or, you know, worse comes the worse. I had like a very specific question I would ask and literally within a half hour, I'd have like a half dozen people answering me, answering me. And then I would go into the code and I would start to type code and the code would say, hey, do you do you want to do this? Like it would offer me suggestions for for things. I mean, it's so amazing. And so I don't want to say simple because making games is still really hard, but it is so much easier to do than it was when I was first starting making games. Oh, yeah. If, if you'd even lost the manual, uh, you yeah. were just done for. You right. Know? Uh, right. And the, the, the resources out there are absolutely amazing. And you're also, uh, you have a podcast and, you know, we've we've covered hardly hardly any of the stuff that you've done on this interview <laughs> so far. You've got Disney, you've got everything. So you're going to have to come on the podcast again. This right. has just well, I'd be happy been ab- absolutely amazing. Um, could you just let our listeners know, about your podcast and uh, where they can kind of find these resources. Well, all right. I actually have two podcasts, but I'll tell you about the one that's game related. Um, That is called Ludology. And now this is uh, 
primarily an analog uh, game program. So it's about board games, which is another thing that I have been doing for quite some time and and um, actually have a new game coming out mm, this week. But um, Ludology is a kind of um, scientific and academic look at game design. Um, it is the current hosts uh, are myself um, and three extremely intelligent designers, Gil Hova, uh, Senlin Fung and uh, Erica uh, Boyars, and we talk about all different types of topics pertaining to game design, everything from player count to theme to mechanics to uh, I don't know, you name it. We we try to cover the gamut, and it was started by a really uh, intelligent um, game designer named Je- uh, Jeff Engelstein, who also dips in from time to time to give us some knowledge, and he's written a lot of really great books on. Uh, on game design. My favorite is one called Achievement Unlocked, or no, Achievement Relocked, uh, and it's a book about loss aversion, which is a fascinating topic that every game designer should know about. Well, Scott, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. I got to talk about some things I don't usually get to talk about. Mm-hmm.